Remain standing for the gospel lesson from John 21. This is God's gospel for us. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas also, I'm sorry, Thomas called the twin. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night, they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the, boat, the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, 300 feet, dragging the net with fish. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this beautiful story that you chose to include the end of John's gospel. And as we meditate on it, encourage us and strengthen our faith and our hope. Give us resurrection joy, resurrection hope, and resurrection faith by means of these words in John 21. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this, the final chapter of John's gospel, is something of a, of a unique epilogue. And to some Bible readers, John 21 has seemed like sort of a, a tack-on, right? 
maybe doesn't fit. After all, the ending, if you think about it, the ending of John 20 would have made for a, a wonderful, beautiful ending. Thomas falls down and worships Jesus, confessing him to be his Lord and his God. Remember, my Lord and my God, the, the most amazing confession that we see in all of Scripture, in all the Gospels. And then John caps it off with a sort of a pastoral summary at the end of chapter 20 about why he wrote the book and maybe even an invitation, right, to believe in Jesus, to be saved. So it would have been a great place to stop. Not only that, but if, if John was going to add another chapter, we might expect him to include, you know, the ascension, right? An extremely important redemptive historical event. You know, when we think about the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and then the ascension of Jesus. Well, if you're going to add a, you know, another 25 verses, can't you squeeze that in? And so these are some of the questions, some of maybe the more skeptical questions that some scholars have brought to John's gospel. And so we have to ask, why not? Maybe a reference to the ascension. And, and why this miraculous fishing expedition? And in fact, these questions have led, these oddities, if we want to call them that, have led some in recent years to conclude that John 21 must have been added on by another author. After John had written it and had been circulating, somebody came along and, and added these 25 verses. And most, or many at least, scholars who are critical of the Bible have accepted this theory, even though there's not a, sh not a shred of historical evidence or, or manuscript evidence to support that John 20 was the original ending. So we need to really grapple with this and say, what's John doing? Why did he give his chapter 20? Rather than pure speculation, let's just accept what we've been given and believe it. And one key to understanding what John's doing here is to recognize that his gospel also has a, a unique prologue, remember? The first 14 verses of John's gospel where, Jesus, where John describes the activity of the pre-existent, pre-incarnate word, Lord, Jesus Christ. And so these final 25 verses of the gospel form something of a corresponding epilogue where John describes the ministry of the post-resurrection Lord. Post-resurrection word. And the point of this epilogue is to illustrate how Jesus shepherds his sheep in his absence. Remember, Jesus is present. He's with us to the end of the age. But we have to acknowledge there's a physical sort of absence for now. And so this illustrates how the resurrected and risen and to us ascended now, Lord shepherds his sheep, how he leads believers into new heights in their, in their Christian walk, how he ministers to people through his church, how he accomplishes his mission through his disciples, not just his original ones, but us as well, and, and how he brings all of his people, how he brings every believer into the eternal 
heavenly kingdom. So that's what's going on here. So the opening event of chapter 21 is it's a true story, obviously. It really happened. Uh, but that doesn't explain why John included in his gospel. He left out more than he included. He says there could have been way more here. So why does he cut other things out and include this story? Well, at least one reason is that the story of the apostles here in their, in their all-night fishing expedition is a living parable. It's a living parable of how the risen Christ relates to us as we toil in this world and as we journey toward the world to come. So, it's a living parable of how God relates to us, Jesus relates to us as we toil in this world on our journey to the world to come. Now, of course, John, one of the, one of the seven disciples here, he didn't realize that this was going on at the time. He didn't realize he was a sort of actor in a spiritual drama that God was orchestrating for the purpose, at least one purpose for which is to uh, encourage us in our faith. But later on, as John reflected on this event, he began to understand its symbolic significance. And he connected it, he connected it with what happened a few years earlier. Okay? This is at the end of, the, of Christ's earthly ministry, but a few years earlier, what had happened? Jesus had looked at his fresh recruits, four of them fishermen, and he said, follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. So some of the disciples were fishing on the Sea of Galilee at the beginning of their three-year apprenticeship with Jesus. And now some of them are fishing again on that same sea. Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. And the parallels between the two events are significant. You can see the parallels for yourself if you compare Luke 5 with our passage today in John 21. And the most important similarities of this scene, I'll just outline briefly. In each case, by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, the fishermen had already faced a frustrating night of fishless toil, both in Luke 5 at the beginning and John 21 at the end. In each case, John commands them to, or excuse me, Jesus commands them to let their net down one more time. In each case, the disciples are unsure who this mysterious figure is commanding them to drop their nets once more. In each case, the disciples obey, and in each case, there is immediate and great success. Now, there is a difference that we're not going to talk about today. Um, but after the sermon, go look and see if you can find a difference between the two, and then you can come and talk to me about it. I just didn't have enough time or room here. But these parallels drove John to reflect on the peculiarities of this final miraculous fishing expedition, which he records for us in John 21. Now, that's not a homework assignment that you can do during the sermon, Okay. John's Gospels, his pastoral goal is for us to see in this the shepherd's heart. 
the heart that the risen Lord has for his people, for his disciples, as we try to serve him in this world and make our way to the world to come. Do you imagine, when you think about Jesus, do you imagine that Jesus is up in heaven scrutinizing you the way maybe a drill sergeant scrutinizes the new recruits in his charge looking for the next infraction? Is Jesus anticipating your next failure, your, your next shortcoming, your next deficiency so that he can get in, your fa- get in your face about it? No. Look at the picture John paints here and that he's really been painting the whole time. The risen Christ is watching everything even though the disciples don't know it. He sees all. And as he looks down on them and their unsuccess, he's interested in them. He cares about them. He even instructs them and then invites them to come and eat with him at his table. And so as you, as you toil on, on the seas of life, Jesus is watching with the eyes of a caring shepherd. He's interested in you. He's not a drill sergeant. And, and he's nearer too, by the way, than you realize. And he's ready to help. He's ready to instruct. He's ready to make up for your deficiencies. And he's inviting you to come and eat with him. Even to come and eat with him forever. After the resurrection, Jesus told his disciples to go up to Galilee. And that's where they are. They're fishing in the Sea of Galilee. Let's read, reread verses one to three. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and, the, and that night they caught nothing. So I said at the beginning that this is a living parable. And these seven fishermen, unbeknownst to them, are a picture of the church toiling and struggling in this world, a world that doesn't always cooperate, a, a groaning creation that pushes back. And Scripture it's really important to, to know in Scripture that the sea represents the nations. And so when, when you're reading more symbolic sections of Scripture, in particular, when, you know, like Revelation, for example, when, when it talks about the sea, it, it's causing us to think about the Gentiles, the nations. And the Sea of Galilee, in particular, is situated among the Gentiles, among the Gentile nations, it's on the north and east uh, part of, of Israel, okay? So this band of disciples on the boat represents the church and its ongoing duty to fish for souls. This is not a stretch. Jesus is the one who uses that as a metaphor, right? He, he, go, he calls them while they're fishing the first time, and he says, There's, I want you to understand that this is a metaphor for what I want you to do spiritually, as you fish for men, to make disciples of the nations. And so evangelism should have a prominent place in the church's ministry to the world. As a disciple of Jesus, you've been given a mission to fish 
for men. As a church body, we've been given a mission to fish for men. In all our endeavors, though, we must realize that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. The disciples were professional, vocational fishermen. They knew how to catch fish better than most of us know how to do about anything. They knew the equipment. They knew the strategies. They, they knew the techniques. They knew the fundamentals of fishing. Nevertheless, interestingly, on this night, they caught absolutely nothing. In his perfect providence, God, Jesus, is providing them with an object lesson. He's turning them into their own object lesson in order to confirm what he already told them back in John 15. John 15, 5 says, without me, you can do nothing. Some translations say, apart from me, you can do nothing. If vocational fishermen are unable to catch fish apart from Jesus, how much more are we unable to catch souls apart from him? And we can broaden this principle, this truth, this application. It's easy to adopt the mindset that I can serve Christ in the energy of the flesh. I can do spiritual work on the basis of my experience or a certain technique that I learned. But Jesus says that whatever is done in the flesh, whatever is done apart from him, whatever is done in our own strength without relying on him is nothing. Nothing, nothing will come of it. It may have the appearance of success on, on the surface. You, you may be, be able to create numerical growth in your Christian ministry. You may be able to create outward obedience in your family. You may be able to create outward unity and fellowship in your friendships or your relationships or even in your home. You, you may lead a lot of people even to the waters of baptism. But insofar as any of this is done according to the flesh instead of according to the Spirit, insofar as it's done apart from Christ, it will one day prove to be hollow and fruitless. Our attempts at success and fruit in whatever we're doing, whatever we're endeavoring to do, whatever God has given us to do, our attempts at success and fruit are futile unless Jesus himself is with us, directing us, guiding us, blessing us. As night is about to give way to day, the tired disciples don't seem to be thinking about their resurrected Lord. But there he is, standing on the shore, thinking about them. Verse four. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 5, Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. James Boyce's exposition of these three verses reminded me not only that Jesus loves us before we love him, but also that he seeks us before we seek him. These tired, hungry, 
discouraged disciples were not thinking about or looking for Jesus. We don't know everything they had been talking about that night. They had a lot of time to talk. And no doubt the recent resurrection of Jesus was still on their minds. No doubt their, their budding faith was, was growing during this time as they're sorting things out in their hearts and in their minds. And yet, like us, they, like us oftentimes, having all those things going on in our heads and hearts, we tend to forget about Jesus. We for, tend to forget to, to remember that he is there. And so we don't get the sense that from this story that they had learned to rest and rely on Christ, to go to him in prayer during times of struggle, to look to him and to expect to see him when they need help. And yet when their thoughts are far from Jesus, Jesus shows up. He makes himself known. When they're not seeking Jesus, Jesus is seeking them. If God's blessing, blessings depended on our seeking him first, we'd never encounter Jesus. We'd never receive his blessings. The, the spiritual blessings that we experience are the result of being sought out by Jesus. Oftentimes when we least expect it. Oftentimes when our faith is on the small side. The grace and graciousness of, of Jesus Christ drive him to meet us where we are, to bless us where we are, to, to insert himself into our lives where we are. At those times when we're not really conscious of his presence, even at those times when we're operating in our own strength, relying on our own skills and our own know-how rather than his strength. The Lord seeks these seven disciples and he seeks them in, in three different ways as far as his words go, in three steps. He asks a question, he gives a command, and then he gives a blessing. His question is, children, have you any food? And, and this, this, he knows that this rhetorical question exposes in a gracious way, their deficiency and their, their need. He's kind of gently helping them see that, that they are in need. Even where they're most competent, they're in need and they're deficient. And God, God you know, if you've read the Bible through, you know that God loves to ask questions that expose weaknesses and shortcomings. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God came to Adam and he asked, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And he knows, that, he knows they answered all three questions. And he, asks, he asked Eve, what is this you have done? In the following chapter, Genesis 4, God asked Cain three rapid fire questions. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Nathan asked David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? In John 20, one chapter back, verse 15, Jesus asked Mary Magdalene, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Again, he knows the answer. But, but 
God's questions force us to face our needs, our sin, our shortcomings, our desperation, our lacking, perhaps above all. God's questions force us to face our hunger, right? The question God is always asking you is, child, do you have any food? Have you got anything to eat? And the right answer is to the question is always, Lord, apart from you, I have nothing. Apart from you, I have no food, but in you I am fully satisfied. And when you answer this way, when you stop and recognize your insufficiency, your need, Christ always fills you up with food. Jesus said earlier in John's gospel that his food is to do the will of his Father. Food is, is an important theme, an image in John's gospel. Jesus says his food, his bread, is to do God's will, his Father's will. And when your food is to do the will of your Father in heaven, when you hunger for righteousness more than you hunger for carbs and protein, you will never lack. You shall not want. After the question, he issues the command, cast the net on the, on the right side of the boat and, and you'll find some. Now, we, we might ask, as others have asked, why the right side of the boat? Um, well, probably because the net was on the left side. If it had been on the right side, he'd have said, cast it on the left side. Um, but, their, but their success is not dependent, ultimately dependent on where or how they cast the net. I mean, they have to obey Jesus. It's dependent on that. But their success is dependent, finally, on whether they obey the instruction of Jesus. That's the point, not the right or the left. Even though that instruction seemed odd to them, it didn't make a lot of sense, maybe, from a technical standpoint. Perhaps they were thinking, well, we just had it on that side. I mean, you know, we're right here. It's, the boat's not that wide. I mean, <clears throat> maybe if you said go somewhere else or something like that, but just put it on the other side. But they did it, and that's the important thing. Is there an area in your life where God is bringing you face-to-face with your inadequacy, with your failures, with your insufficiency, with your weakness, with your sin, maybe? Perhaps you are in the same boat as the disciples. You've, You've been going it alone, apart from Christ, not resting in him as you ought, and forgetting that he's close at hand, ready to help. You've been, you've been wondering why your relationship with your child or maybe a co-worker is not getting better or why all your efforts to nurture your marriage are unsuccessful or why your attempts to share Christ with unbelievers aren't going well. Why your fishing expedition isn't resulting in fish. Or maybe you're just wondering why God isn't satisfying your hunger. And if that's you, there's a way forward. And it's a simple way. It's not easy to do. 
You have to, you have to rely on God's strength to do it. But, but the way forward is to stop doing what you're doing. Stop the, the, the striving, the kind of striving that you're doing now. Stop operating in your own strength. Be still for a minute and listen to the voice of the good shepherd. Sheep hear his voice. But sometimes only when they stop to hear it. Seek Jesus in prayer. Find Jesus in his word. Rest in him. Rely on him. And do what he says. Right? Even if, even if it just seems too simple. Right? Don't, don't overthink it. The Christian life really is that simple. It's not complicated. After Jesus asks the question and gives the command, he then gives a blessing. And don't miss that the blessing comes after the obedience. Jesus delivers such a great catch that the seven disciples were unable to draw it into the boat. It's too heavy. And I also want you to notice that the blessing from Jesus was of far greater weight than their act of obedience that preceded it. Okay, so they're, they're not equal. So God doesn't just bless you, you know, in accordance with how well you and how much your obedience is and how great your acts of faith are. In his mercy, he blesses us beyond. In your walk with Christ, you'll find, as the disciples did over and over, not just here, that simple obedience opens floodgates of blessings. Simple obedience to Christ, even when you can't make sense of it, opens, by God's grace, floodgates of blessings. The Lord isn't stingy with his gifts. He's waiting not to criticize you, not to jump on you like the drill sergeant. He's waiting to pour them out on those with that basic, simple trust in their Lord. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, as the old hymn puts it. Verse 7, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. <clears throat> I'm going to point out one difference between Luke 5 and John 21. So this is not the one I was thinking. Back in Luke 5, at the first uh, fish miracle, Peter's response to Jesus was what? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Well, it's true. He wasn't wrong to say that. But now, in addition to knowing his sin, Peter knows God's grace. He's expecting to encounter a gracious Lord and God. And so he moves toward his Lord. He runs to Jesus and his grace. What a joyful thing it is to know 
not only your sin, but also the grace of God that is greater than all of your sins. Peter is beginning to know, has begun to know that joy of knowing not only his sin, but also God's grace. Verse nine, then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so because this is the third time, that's why Peter had already begun to know that Jesus is not just gonna criticize him. He doesn't just need to be separate from Jesus because of his sin, but Jesus has reconciled Peter through his death and resurrection. I once heard a, a pastor spend uh, nearly a whole sermon on the symbolic significance of the number 153. Um, and I'm gonna do the opposite today. <laughs> I'm gonna say almost nothing about it uh, because mainly because I'm just not convinced uh, that any of the theories move us beyond conjecture and wishful thinking. Uh, if you're interested in, in pursuing that, I can give you some things to read. I admit that John may have had some sort of figurative meaning, symbolic referent in mind, uh, even, if I, even if I don't believe we can maybe know what it is at this point. Uh, but it's possible too, just possible, that the reason the text says there were 153 fish is that John remembered exactly how many fish there were, and so he records it here. For us, and you know, my hunch is that John gives us the exact number to let us know that each one was counted. I mean, it, you know, can you you can imagine like, whoa, look at this! And so there, were, you know, one, you know, get ten over here. Okay, the next ten and three left over. One hundred fifty-three. You know, cool. They're, they're, it, it, they took the time to do it. Each fish was numbered. Maybe that's where we need to explore, uh, rather than um, some typological or symbolic significance. I don't know. But the living parable continues. It continues to tell its story. The the last part of the passage pictures the church, the boat with the disciples, you and me. It pictures the church with Jesus in a different world, in the world to come, eating with him in his heavenly and eternal kingdom. Just think about how different the, 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 you know, the picture that we get when they're at sea versus the picture with them on land. Think of all the differences. So, so they're no longer at sea, no longer in the world, as it were. No longer thinking about all those uh, frustrations and doubts and setbacks and hunger. Uh, uh, dealing with you know, all the, the face-to-face with the groanings of this fallen creation. 
in a different frame of mind. Alexander McLaren put it well. He said, all the details of the text, such as the solid shore in contrast with the changeful sea, the increasing morning uh, in contrast with the toilsome night, so morning and night, the feast prepared, right? They, They didn't have any food, Uh, No is the answer to the question, and now there's a feast prepared. All these details, McLaren says, have been consecrated to show forth the difference between earth and heaven. It would be blindness not to see here a prophecy of the glad hour when Christ shall welcome to their home amid the brightness of unsetting day the souls that have served him amidst the fluctuations and storms of life and seen him in its darkness. Christ shall welcome them home, he says, and satisfy all their desires with the bread of heaven, end quote. So the way we've been reading this story as a living parable is not unique to me. It's, It's the way the church has been reading it, and I think McLaren puts it well, this transition to the shore. We're still serving Christ in this age, okay? So we're We're not to that, in our story, we're not yet on the shore as it were. We're still in that dark sea. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll see that not too far away, there there is an eternal shore and an ever-increasing morning light. And, And there on that shore, our Lord has prepared for us a banquet, a feast. He has prepared a table before us. Until we get there, until we experience the, the consummation of all things, we exist uh, in the sea, and our works matter. Do you see that in this text? In some sense, our works follow us, as the book of Revelation says. Where's that in the text? Jesus invites the disciples to bring their fish, bring their catch. And the fish represent their work, their labor, which of course was really God's work. Right? Paul commands you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2. But then in the very next sentence he says that it is God who works in you both to will and to work or to do for his good pleasure. The fish that Jesus had given them are now offered back to him. And Jesus didn't need their contribution, right? He could have multiplied the fish that he already had if he wanted to. But he values our labor, our work, the fruit that he accomplishes through us. And so we know our labor, our labors are not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. What we do in this world has eternal value and consequences that extend into that heavenly kingdom. Service rendered to your Lord and God will, it, it, it bears fruit now, but it also bears fruit in the eternal kingdom. As one preacher put it, the tiniest work done under the inspiration and direction of Christ is more enduring than the seer's tower. 
So the essence of the eternal heavenly kingdom is that we will know the Lord. That, that eschatological promise in the Old Testament is that everyone in this kingdom will know the Lord from the least to the greatest, from the youngest to the oldest. No one will have to ask or be taught. The disciples knew that it was the Lord Jesus Christ. It was their Lord and God, Yahweh in the flesh on the shore. They didn't need confirmation. They knew. Their knowledge of God had reached new heights. The knowledge of the Lord is our reward. The knowledge of God will be our ever-increasing reward in eternity. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So, fellow disciples, fellow travelers, your future reward is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a reward you've been given already. And it's a reward that you can look forward to because there's more to come. There will be a time when you're not seeing in a mirror, in a glass, dimly. I'm going to close with two scriptures about this future kingdom and what it means for us now. 2 Peter 1, 5 to 11. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whatever does not have them, whoever does not have them, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brethren, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me, Paul says, from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the hope that you have given to us. We thank you for your presence that we have now in this world. We thank you for the unspeakable joys that are waiting for us in the world to come when we will see you, we will see Jesus face to face. 
Oh God, give us the grace to live in light of that hope now. To add to our faith goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and love to increase in these qualities to be productive in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, help us by your Spirit who is with us and help us this week even to grow in particular ways in our understanding and in our knowledge of Jesus. We ask for this in his name. Amen.